Get in the cart. Right at us. The best in the business, Roger Cleveland. Can't wait to get back to Chicago in this one. This is Party of Four, a Mistwood Golf Club podcast. And what do you know? We are back behind the mics. Ben Hutchison, Andy Michelson, and our guest today, Mistwood Golf Club Superintendent Extraordinaire, Ben Kelnoffer. How are you? Uh, I'm fantastic, Ben. How are you? Good. You excited to be here on the Party of Four? Uh, Absolutely excited to be here on the Party of Four. I think we've had you on as a guest before. Could have been via phone, but you're in the studio today. Has to feel pretty good. Feels great. Feels great. Andy, how are you? I'm doing. I'm doing great. The extraordinary. That's pretty strong. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Ben. <laughs> well, that's between you guys. <laughs> Anyways, we wanted to give everyone behind the scenes look this week on uh, the golf course and how things go. But first, I think we need to go back to last year and closing up the golf course. It was a record breaking year for so many places, including us, as far as play. How was the course at the end of 2020? Um, I mean, you could tell there was a little bit of a, well, a lot of bit of an uptick in play, but, um, you know, not, not too much different than previous years. Getting a lot of new golfers out on the course, which is always a good thing, but, um, you know, it was pretty status quo for us. The uh, number one question I get in the off season is, how does snow affect the golf course over the winter? And, you know, a lot of people see – people cover their greens with a, a ton of sand like when you see it yep. see the clubs way up north do that why why do they do that and what do we do and and kind of how's that how's that different well I, it's different for everybody i think you know getting yeah. getting sand down protects the canopy and, and and protects against some winter desiccation which would be wind and a lot of other variables um you know a lot of times um like the snow cover we had um from late january through february um to me, I personally, I don't mind a little snow cover. Um, so it's a good thing. Uh, yeah, it can yeah. be absolutely. You, you just don't want it there too long. Yeah. Um, you know, with with uh, ice and ice forming and too much snow cover for too long can definitely has have some uh, adverse effects on your turf. But um, for the most part, it's a nice insulating cover and and uh, um, can be beneficial as well. So where we get like that extreme cold and then what was it? probably two feet of snow and then it flips way over to 50, 60 degrees. That's kind of best case scenario, right? Oh uh, yeah, I believe so. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Getting, getting the, uh, getting the snow melted and, and into the profile. And, and, uh, I am actually amazed right now. I was, I had a chance this week to really get out and evaluate, um, how we came through the winter. And I was extremely surprised at how dry the golf course is. Um, with, with all the snow that we had, but, um, you know, the ground was still frozen a little bit when we were, when we were melting. So a lot of it ran off, but, um, yeah, I was really surprised at how, how dry we are at this point. So should, uh, assist us in helping to get things prepared for, for opening here, uh, in, uh, towards the end of the month, maybe. Yeah. We're, st- and, and the lake is still frozen in spots. I mean, yep. it tells you how deep the, deep the ice layer was and, and, and how cold we did we did get so that's that's great that we're we're going to be able to come through this uh in in good conditions coming into spring yeah like i said i, I was out on out on the course this week and evaluating and i'm really pleased with uh where we're at with turf conditions um should give us a nice little head start on things 
So what are some of the first steps you take when you're opening it back up? Um, for us, it's really just getting out of there and, and cleaning up, you know. Um, those, those pesky geese like to leave a mess during the winter, <laughs> so we will clean up after them, and we will do some, uh, you know, maintenance practices our, to our greens, um, you know, get, get some things opened up, get some holes in the ground, and, uh, you know, just really start promoting root growth. And once the ground thaws, you know, it kind of just uh, – starts to take care of itself. So, um, you know, early fertilizer apps, um, preventative fungicide apps, all, all those good things that uh, we like to get done prior to uh, an onslaught of play, so to speak. Couple, uh, couple interesting projects. Um, you know, I've, I've noticed over the last couple of years, I get questions about it, but um, is the kind of the restoration of the shoreline on eight. Can you talk more about that? Kind of what we do from a from standpoint to make sure that we're, we're keeping that, that edge of, of eight so it doesn't erode um, over time? Yeah, I think initially we didn't uh, I didn't really do a good job of, of putting in some things to help prevent that erosion. But uh, starting last year, we uh, took on a little project to um, you know, solidify that bank, and uh, we didn't get it finished. But uh, all we really have left is uh, – adding a little soil and, and getting it sodded. But um, we're, we're using these things called coir logs, which are literally made from coconut fiber that kind of set underneath the, uh, kind of set underneath the dirt and uh, kind of hold things in place for when the water, you know, fluctuates up and down. It's insane. It actually, I mean, it actually works. It, it's, it's so kind of unconventional, but, it, but it, it, it really does work in the spots that, that it's been done over the last uh, year or so. Yeah, absolutely. It um, eventually it it's biodegradable. They'll go away, but you know by then everything is well established and in place. So um, we'll see how it works. I've never really worked with them before, but um, did a lot of research prior to utilizing them, and um, I'm excited to see how they work out. No huge projects in the off season, but uh, I thought that what you did on ten was was pretty cool. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. The uh, the creek that runs along the, the right side of the 10th hole, I've always, um, I don't know, I've always thought it was a nice little thing aesthetically, but, you know, we, we, we could never really see it because there were trees. So we literally cleaned out all the trees, exposed the creek all the way down the right side of the hole. Um, it allow us, one, to grow some grass over there because yeah. it never seen sunlight. <laughs> uh, it was always thin and Playing on a hard pan, which, you know, nobody really likes to hit wedges out of hard pan, I guess. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it'll help us. It'll help us do that. Um, and like I said, aesthetically, it um, it's way better, in my opinion. Um, might help speed up play a little bit with being able to find your ball over there. Um, by no means do I think it makes the hole any easier, but uh, definitely makes it uh, a better a better hole visually for sure. It's, it's funny. We talked about it when we were over there yesterday. I actually think it does the opposite effect. I think it might make the hole harder because you're going to find your ball in a pretty precarious spot, right? Yep. And take a risk that you wouldn't normally take on that hole. And we've talked about it with some of the other projects we've done that would be, you know, kind of technically clearing things out, but it actually makes the, the hole a little bit more difficult. You know, things like two where you've cleared it out on the left a little bit more. Well, guys are now – taking a line that's a little bit more aggressive to the left and then getting themselves into a little bit of trouble. So when you clear things out, it doesn't necessarily make, make the hole easier. Right. It, it, it 
basically changes changes the look and the feel of it, but in its own weird way, it actually can make it more difficult. Um, yeah. And it's, 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 it's cool that, that that effect takes place, and actually, you know, when you get that look of, of opening things up, it still still keeps the difficulty of the hole in, intact. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And last year you started redoing some bunkers. Is that something that's on the agenda this year? Uh, yeah, absolutely. We started uh, redoing some bunkers to the PermaEdge system. Um, got it right this time, Ben. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we prepped a bunker, uh, one of the sawwall bunkers on three in the fall. Um, we'll actually get into that next week and uh, start prepping to to stack that one. And my hope is to move to the uh, approach bunker on six and try to get that one banged out um, probably hopefully by the 1st of May. And then we'll stop and and attack a few more in the fall. So we have twenty or so side walls. Is this like a like a three year target? Yeah. Say? Yep. Okay. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a that's a good, uh, reasonable goal for us. Dig a little deeper because I think it would surprise some people of what those are actually made of. So the material that's used in stacking the uh, what we would call sod is actually um, recycled pitch material which is literally astroturf um from soccer fields in europe and um when they you know when they put in uh when they put in new fields they take the old stuff out and um you know if it's not too worn out and it's still in pretty good shape um they cut it into usable pieces and they ship it over to (laughs) ship it over to us in a big shipping container and uh you know there's a methodology in, in stacking it and in how they're they're put together but um we actually had a fellow come out and spend a week with us uh, yeah. before we got started, and he helped us um, start on the ninth, the ninth hole, that bunker there on the ninth hole, and uh, he spent three days with us and really showed us the process. And man, what a huge help! Yeah, that's a, that's like a labor of love to like do each bunker. There's probably, I don't know, let's ballpark it. Is it five, ten thousand pieces in order to create that? create that uh edge like that oh yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. i would say nine probably has around five thousand pieces Ooh. for sure yeah and those are hand laid and then yep. padded down and yep. each individual one padded down yeah it was it was a pretty cool cool process to see but you know your, your staff was able to to be there firsthand so now yep. now we're well prepared to do the do the rest of them and there's so many benefits to it you know you're not you're not hand watering the bunker um they, they last 10 to 15 years longer um from an aesthetic standpoint you really keep that revetted look all the time um, yeah you're um, able to control that you don't absolutely. have you know, grass growing in all different directions right. um, yep. the biggest issue we had with some in the past was that um you know balls would get caught up in that face yep and sometimes golfers couldn't find them and i don't know about you but if you ever tried to hit that shot with a ball stuck in a right. face it's not fun, so um, that eliminates any chance of that. And uh, you know, they'll really, you know, the ball will come off the face and roll away from the face a little bit too, which is, which to me is how it should be. You know, being in a five foot deep saw wall bunker six inches from the face is just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's not fun. It's difficult. And, and this, uh, and this this project, it's important to note too that this project is kind of revamping across the country across the world it's not just us doing something unique and different this is like us being on the front lines of you know i know of uh you know conway farms locally has mm-hmm. started to do it 
Uh, I know Butler National. This is their ne- their next big project. Is is this because they're having the same issues that we had, where the ball kind of gets stuck in the face in the wrong way, uh, and a number of other uh, spots. I know I think Skokie was working on uh, something like this as well. Oh. So it's it's one of those things that, that some of the best clubs, not only throughout Chicago but throughout the country, are, are taking on. And um, yeah, it's just really cool to have that 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 effect and that that ability to uh, to to have these hold up the way that they're going to hold mm-hmm. up for the next 20, 25, 30 years uh, and not have to worry about them every single year right. after the snow melts. I'm actually starting to see it utilized in um, bunkers that aren't necessarily sodwall bunkers, but they're using it to really establish the edge and the lip. And, you know, they're only stacking it six to eight inches all the way around. But I, mean, I could even see that out here. Right. Some of the ones Absolutely. where we have kind of more severe faces, you know, yep. things like uh, the fourth hole comes to mind, yep. you know, where we could, we could see that going through, after the fact and, and mm-hmm. reestablishing some of those edges. And it, you know, it's labor saver on that end too, because you're not edging bunkers all the time. Right. Edge is established and there all the time. Right. So there are a lot of benefits to it. Now, Brickyard Crossing has yep. quite a few of them as well. So it's, it's definitely catching on, you know, with the state of the industry and, you know, some potential labor issues that we've, we've had in the past. I think guys are constantly looking for ways to, save time money and labor so um this has been a huge benefit to a lot of people you know not to pat myself on the back the one day i served on the grounds crew i realized how bad <laughs> of a job that is how hard that is on a daily basis to get us up to where we need to be on a daily basis so i appreciate all the work you guys do on a daily basis it's i mean every single bunker touched in some way in some fashion all the all the little nuances that just people don't realize is is Absolutely amazing for what we need to do in order to get get ready for open every single day. We we appreciate that, Annie. We appreciate yeah. the uh, thirty hours you gave us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As you would say, Andy, does your arm hurt from reaching around and patting yourself I on the back so hard? The back there, hard. Did you hear the slapping sound on the mic? <laughs> hey, so Ben, one thing that is different this year, your buddy, you retired, Tony Smith, our he assistant did. superintendent. He is. Down in the sunny uh, beaches, the nice weather of Florida right now. Want to tell any stories about Tony that are appropriate for the podcast, (laughs) or are they not? Here's the amount of (laughs) stories I have that are appropriate for the podcast. Zero. (laughs) Silence. Zero. Well, tell tell, tell people about him. Well, yeah, Tony Tony was my assistant for 15 years, Um, and Tony and I together have seen... The Mistwood property and other properties just transformed to something that, you know, you never really envisioned something like that. But, um, you know, kudos to to Jim, his vision and everything that he's done here. And, and you know, Tony and I, Tony was really, uh, we're both fortunate to have been a part of all that. But, um, you know, Tony's been in the golf business all his life. His grandparents owned a golf course and that's all he's ever done. And, he had the opportunity to retire early and, you know, I, I wasn't pushing him out the door, but, um, kudos to him, man. What a great career. Uh, what a great friend, great working partner. Um, truly loved Mistwood. Um, very passionate, but, uh, I talked to him, uh, last week and, um, I don't foresee him coming back anytime soon, gentlemen. He's really, <laughs> he's really enjoying himself. He's what you and call shirt challenge. He is, so he's yes. he's definitely in shorts every single day with no shirt on, sitting by his pool. Yes, and I, t- <laughs> I tell you what, he d- he deserves every bit of it. So 
he worked on one of the TPC courses, didn't he? TPC Scottsdale. He was there for the build. That's right. Um, he was fresh out of Purdue at the time. Man, that's super cool. Yeah. How neat would that be to be part of part of that project initially? Well, I mean, he said it was great other than 115 degrees and <laughs> you know, all that good stuff. He said the elements were pretty challenging. But, uh, yeah, great experience for him to be on that initial build and then go through something like Mistwood again. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the story I always love uh, actually to hear he, you tell was uh, the – they were sending Tony off back in December. Is that story where kind of you guys are standing on the, the back patio with Jim as the bulldozers are starting to come out? You want to talk uh-huh. about that one? <laughs> yeah, we were, we were standing on the back patio of the old clubhouse as we watched a big D10 bulldozer take the first cut right out of the third fairway. And Jim, <laughs> uh, Jim might have thrown out some a few – minor expletives and looked at Tony and I and said, are we really doing this? And I think Tony I think it was, Holy beep. We're really yeah, doing this. Yeah. Holy, Holy beep. Are we really doing this? And, and Tony looked at him with a smile and said, there ain't no turning back. Now. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And by the end of the day, the third hole was dirt. Yeah. Yeah. Tony, Tony yeah. was, I mean, the lasting, impact that Tony has on this place will last well past him being here. I mean, he just cared yes. every single day about, honestly, about every department of making sure that, yeah, oh yeah. yeah, you know, he was, he, he truly embodied what Mistwood was all about. It was great, great to have. And, and now we have Kendall and, and excited about uh, the next chapter with him. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's going to be, uh, just, uh, it was a good fit. Good, yeah. good fit for everybody. So another Purdue boy, another Purdue guy. Absolutely. Can't go wrong with the Boilermaker. <laughs> well, we can't let you leave the podcast without talking about one of the sports teams you're passionate about. We'll go a little different direction. The Chicago Bears. They've been in the news, Ben. The Bears. They need a quarterback. They do. And they better be willing to sell the house to get Russell Wilson. I'd like to see Russell Wilson. I'd like to see Russell Wilson. You were, you were a big Foles guy, weren't you? What's you, that? You liked Foles last year, I, didn't you? I was, I was up for anybody other than Mitch. Hey, <laughs> um, some people enjoyed the Mitch train. Um, I was never, I was never down with it, but um, I just wanted him to do well. I bought his jersey right after he got drafted. I was pumped. He just never got there. You bought a Mitch Trubisky jersey? I own one. Oh, oh it's so sweet, man. It's so good. <laughs> You know, you can find those on eBay right now for 39 cents. What? You own a Mitch Trubisky jersey? That was before things played out the way they did, so at that point I was committed to having to back him. Oh, my gosh. Ben, in all seriousness, I think everybody wanted him to do well. Um, But, you know, then the second year came, and then the third year came, and it just seemed like he wasn't getting it. I'm not going to throw all the blame on Mitch. Um, I think there's plenty of that to go around. But... um, it's been disappointing of late. Um, I'm not going to lie. So hopefully we can get the train on the tracks and get some momentum and, you know. I just feel like the whole offseason focus has been on that, though. They haven't even, they haven't even made any moves or looked into any, any other options. Uh, well, I mean, look at the history of the Bears' ownership in front office. I mean, you know, you, you, have, to, you have to lay some of it on them. Um, 
not really much more to say <laughs> on, on that. You know, it's, it's from a fan standpoint, it's, it's frustrating. Um, me personally, I don't like to sit on my hands and watch what everybody else is doing. Is Trubisky any anywhere as close to as frustrating as uh, who's the reliever for the Cubs? Let's <laughs> talk about Carl Edwards, Carl Edwards Jr. Jr. Man, <laughs> I was having a perfectly good day. I didn't want to have to talk about the Cubs. We're that not. Was... We're not going to. <laughs> we're not going we are to. not going to. That could get bad. That's another guy, though. I wanted him to do well. I thought he threw hard. Through ninety seven with just, movement, but just the movement never was right over the middle of the plate <laughs> and right over the fence. But oh. <laughs> anyways, he's not a problem anymore for the Chicago Cubs. Ben, it was good having you on the show this week, gentlemen. Yeah. It's uh, been my pleasure. <laughs> it's been a pleasure and an honor having you here, Ben. <laughs> I feel like we put him in a bad mood. Uh, he did put yeah, him in a bad mood. He closed in a really bad way. It all started with Andy's extraordinary comment. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to downplay the truth. Well, I was disappointed in myself because I truly had no comeback. Com- com- no com- com- no comeback. No comeback. <laughs> like, man, I'm, usually, I'm better than that. <laughs> so... Anyway, thank you, gentlemen. <laughs> thank you, Ben. All right, we'll take a break. <laughs> After this, we'll have Arnold Palmer Invitational, Players' Championship, and I might even have a Lee Westwood story. Stay tuned. There was no blueprint for 2020. At Misswood Golf Dome, we didn't want to wait for change, so we created it from the ground up. A brand new experience to take your game to the next level with Top Tracer technology. 30 hitting bays. You're next up on the tee. Book your reservation at mistwoodgolfdome.com. Welcome back in. We're talking Arnold Palmer Invitational, Andy. And we know who won that. <laughs> Bryson Shambo. I feel like he's a growing topic each time we, uh, we get behind the mic. It was this... Was that in the fall? We talked about him, and we talked about how either people like him or they don't well, yeah, like it was him. After, it was after the U.S. Open. I mean, um, you know, him manhandling a traditional golf course kind of set everybody up in, uh, you know, up in arms. Oh, my God, he's changing the game and all this other stuff. Um, I think what he did at Bay Hill, just literally a couple of swings, kind of really put some people on edge. I, I, I like Bryson. I like Watching Bryson, I mean, perfect example is my father-in-law who is a golfer and never watches golf. You know, when he came into my house Monday morning, he's like, what's the deal with this guy that swings like a baseball player? And I said, Bryson, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And this is, you know, this is a guy who literally never watches golf, never cares about golf, and now he's now he's interested in golf because of Bryson. I I fear that, that this opens up a, a few wormholes that I, that I really don't like. One is... I don't like juniors necessarily thinking that they have to hit the ball 370 in order to compete, in order to, to have fun in this game, in order to, you know, things like college scholarships, things things like that. You know, establishing yourself as a as a well-rounded golfer is going to get you much further down the road than just a guy that, that can absolutely beat on it like Bryson. The other thing I, I don't like uh, necessarily – uh, that that's happening now is is our focus on on distance and limiting distance and the the fight between you know the USGA RNA uh, basically 
the everyday golfer that plays the game and the, the equipment companies. Most golfers don't want the equipment limited. Uh, almost all golfers don't want the equipment limited. If, if there needs to be a separate set of rules for the PGA Tour and the regular everyday golfer, that's actually what PGA Tour players are asking for more than seeing their game limited uh, in a in a totality base you know basis, which doesn't make sense. You know to to have you know Ben, do you want your your driver to go shorter? No, I was going to say the problem for me is if there is limiting, if there's no limiting, have it one way or the other. I'd rather have no limiting, and it's up to the golfer, the person themselves, and everyone's on the same playing field except for your physical ability. So why are we putting limits on stuff. So the the argument on the other side is, you know, doesn't make courses that are some of the gems of the country that are 6,500 yards. I I can think of like the Chicago Golf Clubs offhand, you know, 6,600-yard gem uh, that really is landlocked, can't get any bigger, can't get any larger. They have no intent to make that that course longer, the Marions of the world. You know, some of the the best courses in the world are actually under 7,000 yards. Pebble Beach is a perfect example. You know they're starting to put tee boxes in spots that I don't. I think actually change the uh, aesthetic of the hole, but you know the. So I, I see that side. I see see that side of the argument where they're trying to you know protect some of those older golf courses, but the newer golf courses coming out aren't necessarily being built in that same vein. They're they're being built a little bit larger. They're being being built to react to um, the players' wants needs and. Frankly, some of the equipment that's out. It's fun to hit a golf ball really far, yes. see it fly. Yes. Chick stick the long ball. <laughs> Baseball, golf, overlapping again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's it's more fun to hit the ball solid. It's more fun to hit the ball long. It's it's actually more fun to have things that are more forgiving. You know, to, to have clubs be able to, to do something for you when you don't necessarily do everything perfect. I mean, the... The enjoyment that's in the game of golf now versus 30, 40, 50 years ago when guys are hitting wood woods, guys are hitting blades, guys are hitting a lot of golf balls. You know, what? what's happening now is is more fun. And golf's expanding. Golf's expanding because of it. Yes, we had, you know, COVID is <laughs> helping a lot with that, but equipment sales are up. Everything's up. Everything's exciting right now. So why would you put a wet blanket on this market that is completely, Completely just storming through 20, 2020 and 2021. And one of the other knocks on Bryson is that, well, he can hit the ball a mile, but he has to have a short game. He has to do all the little parts, the parts of golf that will get you a scholarship and get He's you into college. He's not perfect, right? No. He's not perfect. This happens all across the board, right? DJ changes a putter every single week because some weeks he doesn't putt well. Like, you very rarely, if ever, have it clicking on all cylinders every single week. That's the great thing about golf. That's the challenge about golf. When you're driving it well, you're not ironing it well. When you're ironing it well or wedging it well, you're not driving it well. Like That's the variable of golf. That's the everyday variable of golf. That's, that's the beauty of it. Guys don't do every single thing perfect. There is no player on tour that is number one in driving, number one in approach, number one wedges, and number one putting. And guess what? When they are... They're number one for that week, and they win. And and that's it's as simple as that. No argument there. So Lee Westwood finished second, 10 under. I have a Lee Westwood story, but what do you remember about the 2012 Ryder Cup? 2012 Ryder Cup. Okay, so it was at Medina. That was an epic fail by the U.S. <laughs> team. That was like... 
Epic proportions. <laughs> they were up 10-4. Right. They were up 10-4, but then that Sunday afternoon, the back nine at Medina was an absolute disaster. I remember, like, the morning being pretty optimistic. That was also the same day. Wasn't that the same day Rory showed up, like, 10 minutes before his tea time where he got escorted by the police? I think that was the uh, the same day of that. So Can't confirm, but remember it. So it's not like the Europeans were all that confident. They had to be in a little bit of a panic, obviously, and being on home turf. And Medina was – that was one of the first times I can remember. Now maybe it was happening in the past before, but that was the first time I can remember the – U.S. captain having a direct kind of ownership of how the course was prepared uh, each and every day to make sure that that was best suited for the players. So Europe went on to win, Team Europe. And I was a sports anchor reporter in Rockford at the time, and the European team was flying out of Rockford International Airport. Really? They had to make that drive out there. Why? I don't know. I don't you know what makes it work. The world's largest airport. Yeah. No, no, no. They were. So they <laughs> okay. had to get dropped off. So I headed over there. And sure enough, everyone heads into the airport. I'm sure they were hungover. I've heard stories of a wild night in Chicago after they ended up coming back and winning that. And I see Lee Westwood. He's coming by me fast. I'm like, Lee, Lee, quick. Can we do an interview really fast? Just me like 26-year-old Ben thinking I'm someone at that point. <laughs> uh, he just gives me a not today and kept going, and the trophy comes flying by as well. And I think in the moment I was like, man, that guy's a jerk. I don't like him at all. <laughs> but then now thinking back to it, I'm like, he wasn't a jerk. He already did the media thing the day before. He did the interviews. Like I said, they probably had a few drinks the night before and just wanted to keep the celebration going on the airplane. Um, but it was just funny to think back to that. And if you're listening, Lee Westwood, uh, we'd love a redo and to talk here <laughs> on the party of four podcast. Uh, if you do come by this somehow, but, uh, it was cool to see it was the, the plane was huge uh, and it was just really neat to see. I don't mean to dog you on the air. That's your Lee Westwood story. It's the best I can do, man. <laughs> your Lee Westwood story is him waving and going by. Him saying, not today. <laughs> I have more memorable stories than that. Oh, my but God. You built up this story. That's the whole point. You, you text me and you say, I've got a Lee Westwood you gotta, story. You got to bring the people in somehow. <laughs> I had to get you in this that's room. That's your story. Okay. What's your Lee Westwood story? I have one about as same as yours. I'm sure I waved at him as a tournament here or there. <laughs> we had a back and forth conversation. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's the best I could that's do, fair. man. I was a young adult trying to make it in television at the time. That's all I can, all I can muster up. But it was cool seeing them. It was a little bittersweet, uh, knowing what happened and how it all ended. But they were happy heading home, back over the pond. And we were just talking about, <laughs> we were just talking about all the elements that need to go into winning and 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 being a great player. Frank, uh, Frank and I were texting back and forth this weekend. I think if Lee Westwood had, Let's say a top hundred in the world, and he's nowhere close to it. Top hundred in the world wedge game and uh, top hundred in the world putter. He could have been probably ten best players of all time. Wow, that's a I know it's a strong statement, but that dude could hit it, man. He was he's been a he's been a stud ball striker since he came on the scene in the '97 Ryder Cup, uh, which is at Valderrama. I remember him just basically owning that. Uh, Nick Faldo took him under his wing and. He absolutely owned that Ryder Cup, and really, ever since then, his ball striking's never gone away. It's always been the other things. It's been you know the the putting and the chipping that that 
has kind of spelled disaster for certain points in his career, but he's always kind of right there just because he's a, a great ball striker. And I like where golf's at in the sense that he's, what, 47-ish now, I think, yeah. you know, going head-to-head with someone like Bryson. And, you know, there's still a mix because people think that golfers might hit that age and they're not as competitive or they can't be in the top five, top ten. But it's nice to see that mix. You know, the the sweet spot the, the sweet spot doesn't know the age, right? The, the ball speed doesn't know the age, you know. So if a guy is still moving it out there at 170 miles an hour ball speed, still hitting the center of the golf, of the club face, I don't, I don't see why age even matters at, at that point. I think Lee is going to be able to compete for a while. They're the same reason Phil was able to compete the last six, seven years. I mean, his his game is not in great shape right now, but his, he's got good ball speed. He still hits it solid. Still is able to to make clutch putts when he needs to make clutch putts. So. Um, as long as those kind of fundamentals stay in place, there's no reason he he can't still compete. Bernhard Langer is a great example. Oh yeah, you know his he's not hitting as far as hard as he used to, but he's got all the other other elements just as good as they were 30, 40 years ago. Well, I guess thirty years ago, forty is a little extreme. Oh, well, actually, in his case, it might be forty. But <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, I mean he's he's still chipping and putting well, and that that can mask a lot of other. Um, you know, things that aren't necessarily up to the level of the rest of the PGA Tour players. So for someone like me, if I could chip and putt well, then I can mask, you know, the, the bad drives. Yeah, is this the <laughs> tip Is this the tip for the week, the, the pro tip for the week? The pro tip for the week would be to make sure you're practicing from the green back, not away from the green to the green. So make sure to sure up the putting, chipping, then iron play, then driver. It's good. Yeah, that you like that? That one's on the house. That right. yeah. one's free. <laughs> yeah, it's a free, free tip. All right, let's move on to the Players' Championship and some predictions uh, real quick, some odds from William Hill Sportsbook. Dustin Johnson is the favorite, 11-1. to 1, And you have Rory, 14-1 to 1, DeChambeau. 11-1 to 1 on a world number one. Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Rory's 14-1, to 1, DeChambeau 14-1, to 1, Rom 16-1 to 1 on the odds board. What's Shoffley? Man, now you're gonna have to make me dig up my phone. First of all, give us some oh, thoughts. Okay. <laughs> give us some thoughts while I look that up. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited for this year's players. Obviously, this is kind of when uh, everything last year hit the fan, and and we didn't know what was going on. That that was one of the first ones where, you know, they the the first announcement was after day one. Okay, we're not gonna have fans for day two, and then before, I think guys were on the golf course in the second round on day two, and they literally just said, all right, we're shutting it down. And that was that day, I remember, just the, the cascade of the NBA shutting down, the NCAA tournament shutting down. Everything kind of shut down that day. So, you know, the players kind of marks that one-year mark for for this whole pandemic, which is uh, which is kind of ironic. But anyway, back to the tournament. I would say um, – Shoffley is, according to DraftKings, 20-1. to 1. Holy smokes. Same with Justin Thomas. I might have to dust off the old wallet for that one. <laughs> Shoffley's twenty to one. Morikawa is twenty two to one. So love Shoffley uh, for. I, I like guys that play it both ways. Um, you know, the Golf Channel actually had some really good analysis on this the other night. Where, uh, and this is just the diabolical nature of, of Pete Dye golf courses. You know, he wanted to make sure that that players were well rounded when they went on his golf courses. So. <clears throat> you'll notice at the Players' Championship, a lot of guys have to draw the ball off the tee. 
and then they actually have to cut the ball coming into the greens, which I I think is pretty darn cool. I, I never realized that until that analysis, so I thought that was that was that was pretty good stuff. But a guy that works the ball both ways with ease, number one again, I think is Xander Shoffley. Um, and number two would be for me a guy like Tommy Fleetwood. I know I'm taking your pick. Sorry, we talked about <laughs> we this talked before about the this. show. All right, hold on, hold and on. He goes, uh, Tommy <laughs> I don't know. Fleetwood. I'm not sure about him. All right, and now he goes Tommy Fleetwood. All right, I'm a, I'm gonna go the other. I'll, I'll go. You my told th- me someone else. Who did I say? For your dark horse. Dark horse. It wasn't Fleetwood. No. You said Ricky. Oh, Ricky. Yeah. <laughs> That's dark. I mean, it's dark, dark, like abysmally. Like way down. Like but... way down, abysmally dark. You know, this is that point of desperation for him where he has to win uh, in the next few weeks here in order to get into the Masters. It's, I don't know why I'm picking Ricky. Obviously, he's won there before. Anytime, you know, the, and I don't have PGA Tour experience, but I have experience winning it at places, right? If you've won there, I don't care when you won there. When you when you come back to that place, there's just a special vibe. You know, it, you happen to, you know, get on that driving range and magically you're hitting the ball solid. If you haven't been hitting the ball solid before, magically you you start to kind of drum up some things that you did in the past. Those those positive vibes uh, that players have. That's why I like Ricky as a as a dark horse, and just because he's he's down. He's he's in the pits right now. He's playing literally the worst golf of his entire career, and it's not necessarily like anything golf swing related or anything like that. It's just, just he's got a bad run. So, you know, he starts to see some putts fall. He he could really, uh, really make a difference. One guy that's been playing better that I think a lot of people are hoping can come back and do well is Jordan Spieth. He's 30 to 1 odds. 30 to 1? Wow. You know, Jordan Spieth has a little bit of the old uh, um, Roy McIlroy Sundays going. It's not. Not good. He hasn't been good on Sundays, but man, it's been so much fun to watch Jordan Spieth back. I, I would say in the last ten years, the two guys that I like go out of my way to to watch obviously are Tiger and and Jordan, and I don't even know why. I don't know if you know Jordan just kind of reminds me maybe a little bit of of my game or like you know just it's, it's just fun. He's just kind of scrappy. I mean, a lot of things go in his favor it seems like when he wins a tournament, like he'll knock one in out of the bunker or what do you have hole in one last week or a couple weeks ago when he was in contention. Um and it's just fun to watch. He hits shots that he hit a shot last week. It was the fourth hole, it's par 5. It was a flop shot over a tree which has so many variables, but it looked like he had practiced that shot before, which makes no sense because he hit it to a foot and a half. But he was well within control and knew exactly where the ball was going and everything else. It's like just some of the stuff he does just goes, you know, I just appreciate from a from a shot-making level that, that he does is just so much different than some other guys on tour. You know, and I think he actually says the same thing. My game's kind of like Andy Michelson's. Wow. <laughs> You got me this, earlier, so I mean that's yeah, what has the, to happen. That's not for, for Tommy Fleetwood, no. And actually, they have Tommy <laughs> Fleetwood on different boards at thirty-five to one or forty-five to one. Get out of here! So I might have to take a look into this as well. You, you know, what I would have um, definitely not got if you would have told me Tommy Fleetwood still does not have a win on the PGA Tour. Did you know that? He has five on the European Tour. 
Doesn't and that shock you? None though? on the PGA Tour. He has two second place finishes at what the U.S. Open. I feel like he's right there all the time. I guess at least Thursday, Friday, and then I guess it was Saturday. like last time we were talking about Tony Finau. He hasn't won since the 2016 Puerto Rico Open. Yeah, right. That w- <laughs> that was surprising when you you brought that one out. And then sure. he's yeah, and he's again one of the top picks for the players. And you know, there's certain experts that are actually picking him to win. It's like I don't know. Obviously, he's not. That closing deal. I like Xander Shoffley. I'm going Xander Shoffley. We're going Final to the answer. Okay, that's good. I'll go Tommy Fleetwood still. I'll stick to it. Uh, we're going to the bottom of the board, some of the names down there. Uh, the very bottom is Kevin Kisner, 100 to 1. I'd throw a couple bucks on that. Oh, my gosh, <laughs> just, yeah. Just because. I, and I haven't really, full disclosure, I haven't really gambled on golf recently, at least. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, Max Homa, champ, about a month ago, 70 to 1. Really? You know who another guy is? Max Homa has been playing incredible last two months. Another guy that's always, you know, he's on TV because he's making shots, whatever. Billy Horschel. Like, what's this guy got to do? Yeah. To take the next step. Yeah, Billy Billy Horschel is, uh, he's been playing well lately. Man, I like that Kisner pick, 100 to 1. That's what they have him. Southern boy, loves that southern grass. 100 to 1? Yeah, that's William Hill again. Man, that's crazy. Wow. What a... That's a good deal. Yeah, I'd, we can go halvesies on five bucks on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one a lot. What about my uh, my guy Lee Westwood? He's seventy to one. <laughs> uh, obviously, good vibes of of coming off the previous week. I think that's you know that that's promising. I, I don't know if he's perfectly suited for this golf course. He he hasn't won there before. It's definitely it's it's got to be a guy that works the ball both ways. Um, guys that are comfortable. You know, getting their ball to, to go either right to left or left to right uh, at ease. I, I, I love that analysis, and then when I looked back at some of the past winners, that was spot-on analysis of, of guys being able to actually work the ball both ways. And I think that's something I really do appreciate about golf, and you kind of brought it up earlier. It's just, one, it's the course, it's the conditions, it's how people are playing. It can change week to week. You know, this is a guy that got second place in the tournament last week, and it has nothing to do with this week, and now he's 70-1. to one. It's just cool. It's just good vibes. It's it's good vibes, right? I mean, you do anything well for for a week, and and you were just in that process of of playing well. The, just the good vibes that you have going into the next week. The the fine line is always with with guys that win or guys that are close to the hunt. The 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 amount of pressure that that went into that week, the amount of effort to to get to that spot to to win or get second place is extraordinarily larger than the guy that finished 15th. So <clears throat> I would say that might factor into Lee Westwood's performance because he's a little bit older. You know, maybe a young guy is a little bit more resilient and can bounce back and do that week after week. I mean, that's what makes that's what makes Tiger Woods just so amazing. I mean, his win percentage during a certain time was almost 40%. I mean, the effort that goes into winning a tournament and then you come back and basically half the time, Darn near half the time you're you're winning again. That's just astounding, astounding to me. So, yeah, the effort that goes into winning each week can either help a guy or hurt a guy. There's there's times where you see a guy win. Like, perfect example, I'd love to see the stat. I don't think it's ever been done. I don't think you've ever seen a Masters champion win at Harbortown the next week. 
And I would love to see how many guys have actually won won at the Masters and then missed the cut at Harbortown just because of the – it's not necessarily the, the alcohol hangover, but the hangover from uh, from winning is, is, is a real thing. It's that mental grind week to week. Oh. And you've talked about it, even with you and guys like Frank, everyone playing in these – you know, state tournaments and whatnot, and then the bigger ones you played out and Pebble. It's the mental grind. You're grinding over every single shot, and to do that at the highest level of golf for a million, two, three, four million bucks, it's pretty intense. Yeah, Ricky. Uh, no, it wasn't Ricky. Ricky or Rory. One of the two were talking about uh, how they have to almost like a like a like a runner carb load and load up on calories because they lose somewhere between five and eight pounds during the week of a tournament, during a stressful tournament, which that's what I need to do. Yeah. I need to get, I need to get in the tournaments. I need to get in the hunt every single week then uh, (laughs) to, to unload some of this. But yeah, I, I was shocked by that, but it just goes to show that, you know, not all effort necessarily has to be, you know, full out hardcore effort. There's, there's a real thing with stress and mental and and everything else that goes into golf. And that's why I always say, you know, yes, there's there's some players that that make a, a ton of money at the level of some of these other sports, but dude, they earn it. The last hour of a tournament is the hardest hour in all of sports. I don't. I wish we had people calling in to refute that. The hardest hour in sports is the last hour of a golf tournament. A one shot lead with four holes to play, I would argue, is the hardest hardest thing in sports. Period. End of story, no doubt about it. There's no reaction there. You're having to think about what you're doing. You're having to execute what what you want to do. You have no control over your competition. When you think about those, just those three elements alone, make that probably the most unique thing about golf versus anything else. It's very true, and for some, the last hour of this podcast might be the most (laughs) difficult and hard (laughs) thing to to do or listen to. But I do want to throw one more name out uh, for the players, and that is Patrick Reed, who himself, he has a lot of talk around him as well. He's 35 to 1. Done. Done. That'd be, that's a great bet. Patrick Reed, 35 to 1? Man, he's playing good. That's what I'm saying. He's playing really good. Um, started working with David Ledbetter too, which is interesting. I, I don't know if it's if a guy with an ego of Patrick Reed has to also work with a guy like David Ledbetter, who also has a uniquely large ego for a teaching professional. Uh, maybe it's a maybe it's the only guy that he can respect and talk to. If it's not Butch Harmon, which probably wouldn't touch Patrick Reed with a ten foot pole. I'm just thinking for Patrick Reed to actually listen to somebody, it, maybe it had to be David Ledbetter. Well, maybe I should tell you my Butch Harmon story. Bring it. Well, okay. I mean, I was playing <laughs> around at Rio Seco, and I saw his teaching facility. There's my Butch Harmon story. You didn't wave from like I 300 didn't even see feet, him. I, nothing? I didn't want to get too close, you know. I wanted to respect the distance, you know, living in 2021 here. But, no, I, I have no idea. But it was nice. It was very nice. I'm sure he, he does a great job there. All right, my favorite Butch Harmon story was, <laughs> I don't know, why, why would he go down Butch Harmon? You just mentioned oh, the egos right. in golf and whatnot. Yeah, so my favorite Butch Harmon story was, and this was when he was working with uh, two great players, and I'm guessing you can guess these players just based on this. He goes, I play with, or I uh, I teach the smartest player in the world, happens to be also the best lefty in the world, and then I teach another player who is currently number one in the world, and if I gave him an X, he couldn't spell ox. 
So oh, he goes, man. golf takes all kind of players, um, and 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 there's different players, but you can still succeed at this game in all different levels. <laughs> Very good. I like it. Yeah. Well, this was truly a good time. I'm glad we got back behind the mics, and we'll look forward to doing it again soon. I hope everyone had a good time listening. Thank you so much, Andy, and we will see you all next time. Thanks, Ben. Until next time. Get in the cart. Right at us. The best in the business, Roger Cleveland. Can't wait to get back to Chicago in this one. This is Party of Four, a Mistwood Golf Club podcast.